0: Welcome to this APTA podcast. Welcome to PTJ Author Interviews. PTJ Editor in Chief Alan Jetty talks with authors about the most interesting and sometimes surprising aspects of their work. And now, Dr. Jetty.
1: I want to welcome listeners to this latest PTJ podcast. This is Alan Jetty, Editor in Chief of PTJ. And today I'm very pleased to welcome as my guest, Dr. Andrew Post. Andrew is a doctoral student uh, at the University of Iowa in the Department of Physical Therapy and Rehabilitation at the Carver College of Medicine in Iowa City. Welcome, Dr. Post. Thank you very much for having me. I look forward to our discussion. The title of the article you and your colleagues published is Efficacy of Telehealth, for Movement Evoked Pain in People with Chronic Achilles Tendinopathy. Uh, I was really struck by the timeliness of this, um, this study and article, and I think people will be interested to, to learn more about it. Let me give a little synopsis, and then we can talk about it. The purpose of the study was to compare the efficacy of physical therapy delivered via complete telehealth hybrid in-person and telehealth, compared to all in-person um, formats for the physical therapy, and movement-evoked pain for individuals with chronic Achilles tendinopathy. The authors used a quasi-experimental design where 66 participants completed their physical therapy all in-person, all telehealth, or a combination of the two. And That was based on their preference, not random assignment. Non-inferiority analysis of the telehealth and the hybrid groups in comparison to the all-in-person group demonstrated that individuals with chronic Achilles tendinopathy who completed the tendon loading physical therapy program uh, through telehealth or a hybrid format had no worse outcomes with respect to their pain, kinesiophobia, pain catastrophizing, and anxiety as compared to those with the same intervention through in-person visits. So, to begin with, uh, Andrew, why don't you talk a little bit about what led you to do this study?
0: Yeah, so this is a secondary analysis of an original study that had the question of the effect of an educational program to address pain-related psychological factors for individuals that have Achilles tendinopathy. Um, we actually began enrollment in the fall of 2019 and continued on into the spring. And when things started closing back down, we had quite a bit of momentum with recruitment. And so we spent our spring break shifting over to an all telehealth format uh, to continue on with with our recruitment. And then in July, when we were able to open back up in-person human research at the university here, we were able then to offer both in-person and telehealth formats for potential participants. And we were able, able to cater to their preference and offer their visits based on their needs at that time. And so, what this offered was a really unique opportunity to kind of compare three different modes of delivery of physical therapy for this diagnosis.
1: I applaud your uh, flexibility. In the article, you note that the treatment of Achilles tendinopathy is well suited for telehealth. Uh, in your view, what what characterizes a condition that's well suited for this modality?
0: Yeah, sure. So for specific to Achilles tendinopathy, uh, we know that the highest level events for addressing Achilles tendon pain is exercise, um, specifically a, a progressive tendon loading exercise approach. For our exercise program, we actually didn't require any sort of additional equipment and really only the use of body weight. And so particularly during lockdown periods during COVID, uh, that really helped to facilitate with individuals not having to do any sort of travel to a gym or to a clinic to access anything in particular. And we also felt that that really helped out with overall engagement. And as far as exercises specific to eclosinopathy, it's, it's really just a lot of heel raises, either isometric or concentric, eccentric motion, um, which is a relatively simple motion, uh, which can be demonstrated visually uh, on a screen or even in person for those types of visits. It doesn't really require a lot of hands-on uh, for cueing or feedback, which some exercises may, particularly if you're asking the patient to engage a particular muscle like a glute medius or a middle trapped in a scapular stabilization exercise. We also know that in addition to exercise, uh, education is also recommended for Achilles tendinopathy. In a previous study that we completed, we found that individuals that did have the AT diagnosis had higher rates of kinesophobia and pain catastrophizing. And so the telehealth format really provided um, an opportunity for one-on-one visits and active listening um, and an opportunity to really individualize not only exercises, but the message that we're sending to patients uh, to really cater to their needs uh, and address their, their beliefs as well about exercise and what they've really felt like they needed to get better. As physical therapists, we provide exercise and education to all diagnoses. So it's pretend- there's possible that telehealth may be uh, an option for all musculoskeletal conditions, but instead of focusing on the conditions, also particularly we might be focusing more on the type of individual that's well-suited for telehealth. There may be individuals that aren't really interested in sort of hands-on manual therapy interventions and possibly just looking more for guidance and self-management and instruction on how to manage their condition in the future. And that might be the type of patient that we're trying to tap into with with the telehealth format.
1: Well, you know, building on the point that you just made, one of the challenges in your study was the quasi-experimental nature of your design. Uh, the the three groups, patients in the three groups were not enrolled simultaneously. They were not randomly assigned. So you always have to be concerned about potential selection bias. But to what degree was this uh, a real issue in your study? And to what degree do you think it compromises the internal validity of your findings?
0: Yeah, that was something that we were also curious just because this wasn't uh, a true RCT in that sense. It was really group assignment was almost forced based on different restrictions and ability to open back up and offer either in-person or telehealth formats. So we did look at the effect of time uh, as we did not, again, you had mentioned not, we weren't able to simultaneously enroll individuals. Um, We broke down the groups into three different time cohorts and explored the effect of time on the primary outcomes and also all the secondary outcomes as well. So we used the closing down. uh, So as our, as our time uh, dividers. Um, so from the beginning of enrollment in September 2019 to the middle of March uh, was our first time cohort. And then when things were completely closed in the middle, from the middle of March until the middle of July, that was our second time cohort. And then our third one began the middle of July until the end of our enrollment. And so interestingly, when we looked at all the, di- the primary and the secondary outcomes, we actually didn't see any differences across uh, those cohorts except for one outcome At baseline, which was the Tampa-scale kinesophobia, 17-item questionnaire, and that difference was significantly different. And that was driven by the difference between cohort that enrolled as everything was closing down was a little bit higher than the cohort that was enrolling as everything was opening back up. Um, So from July until the end of our enrollment period. While that difference was significantly different, is actually only four points for not sure if that four-point difference is clinically meaningful. However, for all the rest of the time points and outcomes, we actually didn't see any sort of differences in either either between the, across groups um, at any of the time points. And kind of to speak to your point about potential bias and who was selected, I do think that, there, again, I kind of mentioned there might be some individuals who prefer telehealth format. And I thought one point that was interesting, we also asked individuals to complete the global rating of change and kind of report their perceived benefit from the treatment at before they began treatment at the eight week time point and also our 12 week time point. Um, and I thought what was interesting was that the uh, telehealth and the hybrid groups, their anticipated GROC scores weren't any different than the in-person groups scores. So almost their anticipated benefit or their expectations of what they were gonna get out of the treatment didn't differ. Um, so again, may have tapped into to a potential participant uh, or patient group that really more preferred a telehealth uh, format.
1: Great, thanks for that discussion. Uh, I was surprised when I read the article that you excluded individuals with cardiovascular medical conditions. Given the the, the relatively benign nature of the intervention, uh, I guess question number one is, why did you think that was necessary and did you have to exclude many people because of it?
0: We initially were screening individuals in the in-person visits prior to the initiation of an exercise program. Um, we took vitals, heart rate, blood pressure, um, and we did switch that over to a verbal screening when we moved over to a telehealth uh, format. Um, we actually didn't exclude anyone because of that reason, um, and but with the in-person screening, uh, we actually did catch one person that had high high blood pressure. Uh, we actually referred them back to their primary care, um, and they began a regimen of hypertension medications from that screening.
1: You know, I suspected that with the telehealth it might be challenging to achieve high therapeutic alliance and it was interesting that you looked at that in your study but that's not what you found uh, could you talk about that finding a little bit
0: yeah so all the groups were able to achieve high therapeutic alliance with the physical therapist that was the stream we had one pt that provided treatment for all the groups and yeah we were a bit surprised uh, with that finding yes we didn't know what we would expect but i'm I'm curious how changes that were affecting everyone, including the the shift over to an online platform for communication uh, that was happening around the world for everyone, uh, may have influenced the results where virtual platforms like Zoom or Skype or FaceTime uh, became more of the norm for communicating. I do wonder for the all-telehealth group, when everything was shut down and everyone was socially isolated, if that may have potentially became an opportunity for them to interact with someone um, at that time. and an opportunity to communicate and develop a relationship where everyone is mostly sitting at home. Um, and also for the, the hybrid group where they selected to either do in, a mixture of in-person and telehealth visits that may have catered to their preferred mode of, of communication. And again, prioritizing or really figuring out what they felt was best for their completion of physical therapy.
1: You know, I was pleased to see that you looked at a range of psychologic uh, outcomes, not just pain. And your findings, I thought, were, were interesting in that regard. The telehealth and the hybrid groups did not demonstrate non-inferiority when you looked at self-efficacy at 8 and 12 weeks compared to the uh, all-in-person group. And only the hybrid group demonstrated non-inferiority with depression at 8 and 12 weeks. Were you surprised by those findings? And do they suggest there might be some other limitations
0: to the the modality of telehealth? So for self-efficacy, when we look across groups at baseline and then compare the scores to the primary endpoint at eight weeks, all groups demonstrated improvements on the promised self-efficacy from those time points. Um, And also when we looked at between eight weeks and the 12-week time point where we weren't having as many touches with the participants, they either maintained or demonstrated a little bit more improvement between those times. And if you look across groups at the scores, um, they actually aren't statistically significant. And I'm I'm curious if the non-inferiority, the lack of non-inferiority demonstration by the telehealth or hybrid groups for that may be more of just a a lack of adequate power to answer that question. We were originally powered for a superiority analysis to look at the effect of an education intervention on pain. And then for this, we asked the question about non-inferiority. And again, that may be just more of an issue of lack of sufficient power. Primary aims paper, we did see that self-efficacy was significantly associated with improvements in movement evoked pain, which may indicate that it's more of a mediating factor as well for for pain. And then specific to depression, uh, which you also mentioned, all three groups at baseline for the PROMIS depression scores uh, were actually below the general population average for that measure. And then the three three groups either demonstrated small decreases or maintained the same throughout their enrollment. Uh, Again, across groups, no significant differences at any time point. Again, that may be back to the not inferiority, uh, the lack of demonstration of non-inferiority again, maybe more uh an issue of p- under, being underpowered, which but that does provide an opportunity for future questions, either enrollment of more individuals that have a or potential expanding over to additional muscle skull diagnoses to better add to the literature on telehealth and kind of figure out or understand where telehealth can be optimized for individuals versus where there might be potential limitations.
1: Fair point. I mean, it's a it's a not in not uncommon limitation of a secondary analysis. Some of your outcomes are going to be underpowered. Well, lastly, let me, let me ask you, are you continuing this line of research looking at telehealth and telerehabilitation?
0: In some sense, uh, I'm, I'm involved with another uh, study where we're looking at movement and pain assessment from a distance. And I do think there are potential opportunities for the continuation of this line of, of telehealth research, including, you I kind of mentioned it, We've already developed materials that have been transferred over to electronic format that may facilitate recruitment of larger sample sizes for individuals that have achilles synopathy um, to answer some of those secondary analysis questions that weren't we weren't able to address um, with this paper. Or again, like I mentioned earlier, expansion over to other musculoskeletal diagnoses. But one question that would be interesting is transferring this over into a real-world setting, potentially pragmatic trial design, and looking at clinician day-to-day-based uh, practices with scheduling and really answering the question of who's appropriate for telehealth and help clinicians decide in their decision-making on who to schedule and overall affecting clinical practice patterns with scheduling.
1: Good. I I agree. I think there's there's a lot of interesting questions that need to be uh, examined in this area. Maybe we'll get another uh, pandemic and shutdown and give you another opportunity. (laughs) Hopefully not. (laughs) No, I'm with you there. Well, thank you, Dr. Post. I appreciate your taking the time today to talk about your study and for publishing it in PTJ. I look Thank forward you to your future work. Thank you very much for having me today. Okay. Take care. Bye now.
0: You can find more APTA podcasts like this one on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify, or by visiting apta.org slash podcasts. Thanks for listening.